welcome to Planet Poetry. My name's Peter Kenny, and we've been in the vaults again to tide you over summer. Here we present a conversation I had with Charlotte Gann back in January 2021. This is one of my favourite conversations in all my time in Planet Poetry. Just fascinating. I hope you enjoy it. Charlotte Gann is the author of a pamphlet, The Long Woman from Pickhog, which was shortlisted for the Michael Marks Award in 2012, and two full collections of poetry published by Happenstance, Noir in 2016, and The Girl Who Cried, published in 2020. Both volumes weave nuanced observations of loneliness and are illuminated by sequin flashes of searing honesty. So I'm delighted to welcome Charlotte Gann to the Planet Poetry Podcast. Welcome, Charlotte. Hello, Peter. We're into the the worst three call ever at the moment. Lockdown three, the bleak midwinter. I wanted to ask you how all this ghastly business has affected your writing and in the last 10 months or so. Are you able to write? I'm writing a bit again at the moment. Um, I have, I mean, it is a ghastly business, as you say, it's hideous, but not being anything useful like a nurse or a teacher or anything like that, I personally have enjoyed having a bit more processing space than I'd normally get. So you followed a this wonderful collection noir with another corker, The Girl Who Cried. You know how rock bands have that sort of difficult second album business. Did you have any trepidation about launching the second one? Doesn't the second album syndrome depend on the first album having been a huge hit? I'm not sure. Oh, maybe. But, but <laughs> for, for me, I think, if any, you know, the experience of, of living through it once kind of prepared me for the the quiet of living through it a second time. It's yeah. quite nice. You just get on with the work and don't worry too much about that aspect. But also the two books, actually, with hindsight, I kind of wrote them in part, in parallel. I couldn't yeah. see the second one until I'd written the first one, but I had been working on both for a long time. So it wasn't like I started with a blank oh, piece right. of okay. paper after yeah. Noir. Uh, I'd had these two kind of themes running concurrently. Oh, I like the idea of writing two books at the same time. So I'm going to ask you to read the first poem in the noir book which is called puzzle puzzle if i look closely i can see just how these red roofed houses slot together where to unclip the lid on each lift it gently and peep inside in this one a lad with his back to a box room door plays space invaders next door A lonely widower stares out at the jutting bones of a climbing frame. In number three, two women sit at a kitchen table, a bottle of red open between them. One cries, shakes her head, talks heatedly in a whisper. Here, a teenage couple undress each other in a large bay-windowed bedroom. A man lurks in shadows on the stairs outside their door. Meticulously, I chalk an outline wherever I see a body fall. I plot my own route through, between houses, head down, hurrying, yank a red thread taut around drawing pins. It's only occasionally a roof won't click back neatly. I leave it tilted, have to hope this won't upset the hole, or that it will. That's such a a wonderful opener. And uh, with all your poems, I find myself sort of puzzling over them. Uh, it's almost like you're playing with a toy town, and th- there are 
clues that things are going a bit wrong. You've got the man lurking in the shadow outside the, the lover's bedroom and the protagonist is chalking outlines to fallen bodies. And there's that sort of difficulty at the end of putting the world back together again. I felt like you were recruiting me in the role of sleuth, you know, as a reader, and that we were somehow working together to make sense of a crime scene. How do you feel about your readers? Have you got designs on them? Are they to be trusted? But I love the idea of you feeling cast as a sleuth, uh, not yeah. least because, as you say, we're, then we're in it together. You know, you've joined the eye in the poem, um, which instantly makes it less lonely. And, and yes, there is a kind of trail of clues, but part of the atmosphere, both of the kind of concept of noir, but certainly of the book, I hope, is a sense of not quite being able to piece it together, a kind of fracturedness and narratives that won't click neatly into place like those roofs. So yeah. this and this kind of creates this kind of mad-making, anxious state. The world tells me one thing, I know something else. And, you know, I like working with that anxiety. Like I, yeah. I have a sense of kind of paralyzing over responsibility that many of us carry, while the people perhaps most culpable take none at all. And yes, and sorry, I, I definitely trust trust the reader. I mean, doing so is all part of the whole magic of books, isn't it? This kind of mm. communication with people you never meet. But another good example of that is the uh, poem Tunnel. Tunnel. She and I, two farmers' wives, sit together drinking giant frosted lagers, dotted around us the specks of other lives. The darkness is real, she says, leaning towards me. I glance around the room, an old sod in red trousers, a writer I know from the pub, various others. These people are all in pain. Oh, yes, she murmurs and smiles. And we dig enthusiastically into our carbonara as the dark tunnel opens, unzips the length of our table, the room, the restaurant, it's lime green tables and chairs, Charlie and Lola wallpaper, pseudo-Italian staff. It's rows of optics and chrome bar stalls. It's black and white swirling floor tiles. The chasm swallows them all. Yeah, this particular poem always makes me think of the films of David Lynch, you know, the fact that you're... you're... The other person in it is saying, the darkness is real. You know, that juxtaposition of an everyday situation with this kind of existential horror, which is just about to engulf you. Although the irony for me is that, that someone saying the darkness is real yeah. is hugely comforting to me. What I can't quite bear is the fact that we pretend it isn't communally. Um, yes. So just allowing that, uh, the sort of integration of that depth into a normal scene is a relief to me, as opposed to trying to keep it down and you know out of the way and out of sight the whole time, which is the thing that I find mad-making above yeah. all else. I'm somebody that's uh, suffered quite badly from anxiety in my life. I do find both of these books weirdly comforting. That's quite cathartic for me, you know, as a, as a reader. It's just like, oh, wow, you know, it's not just me that has that crazy feeling. Exactly how I feel about the books I love most as well, is there's that companionship of being joined in what we really feel as opposed to what we're constantly told we're yeah. supposed to be feeling. When I first got hold of Noir, one of the first words that came to mind was Ganland because it had that sort of film noirishness about it. And it was kind of, there's a definite sense of 
you know, this is a territory. It's almost like a weird little town. And, you know, with the, with the title noir and the book sections you've got are, are called things like surveillance, witness, protection, the bloody chamber, 11th hour and so on. They almost sound like film titles. You know, the, the, you create this kind of fictional world out of hints and secrets. Did you think, right, I'm creating a little environment now, I'm going to populate it? At the very beginning, it wasn't a conscious decision. I call my unconscious my elephant. And I think right. you know, my elephant is what makes the, the big moves in life, you know, the yeah. big decisions. Uh, and certainly I include in that writing these these books. So uh, to start with, I was writing poems that came quite naturally to me. And when I took them anywhere to workshops or anything, I kept hearing the same two adjectives, which were filmic and dark. And then I think over time, I started actually sort of trusting that more. And then, yes, it became, um, I think you called it an imaginative territory. And it did start being this kind of imaginative territory that I could enter. And it felt a bit like kind of building an alternative world that I'd always seen that sat just inside the the normal world. There There was also an alternative me in there that was this young person, but also someone who was a bit more able to, to speak out than I, than I feel as a person. But I've written on my blog how I felt like these poems came from my un, what I call my understory. I felt I've led two parallel lives, and one is the sort of apparent surface one, and the other is everything that's been going on behind the scenes and internally, and is far less visible or apparent. Um, mm. and, and both Noir and The Girl Who Cried have felt as though they've come directly from from that side, the side of my life that's been as distinct to me as the apparent facts, but not spoken about. It did feel in the end like with Noir, over time, like I was building this sort of townscape, brick mm. by brick, and it, but it was poem by poem. But the poems are, are built with true details. It's not like I sit down and think, oh, I'll make up. You know, most of the details that I put in are, are, are true, but I've concocted them in a way that is imaginative. Did it give you permission, you know, once you were starting this kind of world building to to write in a different way? Was there a kind of something enabling about the environment that you created? And and when I found the envelope of noir, which I have mixed feelings about, but when I found the envelope of noir, it is, I think, you know, a noir-ish world is in some ways more subterranean, but it is also simpler and starker in some ways. And that was a relief as well, because, you know, one of the things I find most paralyzing is the complexity of everything. Consider everything from everybody's point of view all the time, overthinking and overthinking. And there were, there was a real relief to enter this kind of a simpler environment in which I could actually make some utterances. It's like um, deciding to photograph only in black and white. There's a whole aspect you don't have to think about anymore. We were talking about making anxiety tangible, and I think uh, one fantastic example of that is The Black Water. Could you read that, please? The black water is lapping at your cup and saucer. Do you really not see it, ink sloshing against fine-rimmed china? My eyes are on your kindness, on a vase of sweet peas in your alcove, quiet standard lamp by pale blue armchair casting its aura but I can't not see the cold, dark water, can't not feel its oil seep up through my boyfriend's jumper. You pass a plate of small pink cakes, even as the black sea licks bookshelves, light shades, even as I hoist my body out of this chair, toppling the delicate oval table. 
back away across worn grey carpet grope for the door. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I tell you, the thing that really gets me in that is that you're feeling utterly anxious, but you're still going through the charade. You're still trying to keep it all down and just keep going. And that's exactly the comfort that I think readers will take in this is that, oh, God, I've been in that exact moment. And there it is in black and white. Again, it's a bit like Tunnel, though, that the other person who's uh, denying the presence of that and um, the protagonist is is saying, you know, do you really not see it? Do other people really not see this? But you, then you, Peter, you say, yes, yes, I see it. (laughs) And that is, it is, it's a relief. It's a kind of meeting. When I was saying about your poems, that there were some I still kind of continue to return to and puzzle over. I think the title poem is, for me anyway, the sort of exemplar of that. Would you read Noir for us? Noir. I only ever catch a moon-thin glimpse of the projectionist's face as I wander down my lonely aisle, glance back before he whips his curtain shut. In this deserted auditorium, I park my own blunt calf of body, let it sink, groaning, into a rising trough of darkness. This is our windowless home. Behind my head, nothing but deep, thick folds of milky black, while my eyes, live though furtive creatures, dart across the nuance of the piece, worn thin like hallway carpet. Inside this bobbing car is where I touch the hidden seam as the last reel rolls, heroes rise before the kiss, where my life and the darkness meet. Great to hear you actually read that because it's just one of those that makes me just sit and speculate. The film you have to watch in the dark and there's an uncertainty over who's the projectionist. And then you get this moon-thin glimpse and you think, well, a moon is something that's constantly changing anyway. You know, is it a cinema? Is it a house? Glimpse a hallway carpet. And then you have a blunt calf of a body and terrible things happen to calves. And there's the prospect of this film ending, if it is a film. It's full of this dreamlike logic and ambiguity. So this is a really long-winded way of saying, you know, to what extent are these poems as full of surprises for you as they are for the reader they do vary i mean i definitely subscribe to that thing people say about a poem needs to surprise the writer as they write it um or as they discover it Uh, i certainly don't sit down and set out to write a it's completely deadening for me to sit sit down and try and write a poem about something i think i already know what i'm going to say so definitely the whole adventure of putting together both these books has been about discovering. So, yeah, this one I feel I discovered in the same way as you're discovering, but this it sits for me as the auditorium and mind. Projection is is a thing in cinema and a thing in psychology. Who is the projectionist is, is the big question for me of this poem. When I'm feeling at my most isolated, I feel kind of painfully large-headed, a bit like a Gary Larson character. <laughs> and 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 like I'm completely alone trying to figure everything out in the dark with my brain, you know, and it's not, it's the kind of opposite of how I feel when I'm in what might be described as flow. I'm not sure I ever get into a state that could be called flow, but you know what I mean. Like talking yeah. with you, I feel with you in this conversation. This poem noir for me, it sort of captures the the kind of mentally most isolated state I can get in. 
In The Girl Who Cried, uh, things to note, for example, the poems have no titles. There's cartoons dotted through the book. They add a sort of charm and a just a touch of loveliness. I'd like you to read, I drew tiny devils round the house. Okay. I drew tiny devils round the house. I drew them round my hours. I drew them in pencil on the walls so small no one noticed they were there at all. I drew them on the skirting boards. I swept the yard and filled the coal scuttle in the frightening dark. And I crept down the garden far beyond the light that spilled from the sitting room window. And I shut the bantams in at night so they weren't dismembered. And I polished my father's shoes kneeling on newspaper on Sundays. And I laboured alongside Void, who always looked dishevelled, while Null, whom I loved with all my heart, had everything. Were Null and Void the names of cats? (laughs) They really were. (laughs) What does writing about childhood bring to your poetry? And is it a subject that you find yourself returning to a lot? I think I've written a lot about adolescence um, Mm. and from my own adolescence experience. There's a lot in noir that's kind of adolescent. But I think I've written less of what I think about as as kind of deep childhood. (laughs) I think childhood seems like another country to me, and I actually find it hard to access that. Although, you know, one kind of big premise of The Girl Who Cried is that we carry the child we were and the childhood we experienced with us, inside us, our whole lives, influencing things. But this poem, yeah, the one I just read is specifically from childhood. But in this case, I've put together a kind of collage of of facts from my childhood. And when they came together, I felt that together they worked as a metaphor for Mm. how certainly I learned to manage life, which obviously I did in childhood. And the details I brought together in that poem all represent different things for me now and that's why it worked for me and it it stayed as a poem but you know what do we do with our difficult feelings you know where do we put our our love and attachment and and what about all the work we do just to maintain the status quo as it is Um, and all of which this you know at some point may need to be dismantled (laughs) you can't just carry on as a small infant throughout your life although I've tried (laughs) <laughs> and I like the quotation from Einstein, we can't solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. And I think this poem is a bit about when and how I created my problems. And, uh, you know, I need different thinking now to, to solve them. Uh, just that opening image of drawing tiny devils around the house is, is so fabulous in, in terms <laughs> of how a child asserts itself and the danger and the significance of what they suggest and how those tiny little devils grow into different things as we age. But they, they were in pencil and they were really small and they were secreted away, so they were invisible. No, nobody ever noticed them. Some future archaeologist will look at the ruins of that house and discover these little devils there and cr- construct an amazing theory about that. Can I ask you to read The House With No Door Looks Welcoming? The House With No Door Looks Welcoming with its wisteria and robins. I can see through the kitchen window a bowl of cherries. They're the brightest, darkest, shiniest cherries, but that window's shut and bolted. I move on round. 
I know I shouldn't walk on flower beds. I keep thinking the door must be around the next corner. I've lost count now how many times I've circumnavigated. Yeah, this is like a kind of reduced Kafka in a way. It's like you're just going round and round this house trying to find the way in. And and this sort of sense of tantalising domesticity inside with the lovely cherries and things. This may sound a little contrived, but, you know, is poetry the, a place you can enter safely? Or is it a place where you draw all your devils? <laughs> well, I love the idea of um, asking this question of poetry. I mean, The Girl Who Cried is... For me, a book about living with longing, and 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 that's caught up in the, in the sense of being shut out of whatever it is you think you want to be inside. But yes, I mean, poetry itself is a, a kind of strange old magic house, isn't it? And a house with no door, among all sorts of other things. It's a kind of invisible house too, because I think you know most people most of the time completely ignore its existence. And for some reason, your question makes me think of Emily Dickinson saying, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. It's like, yes. this is a slanted house, certainly. And, and so I guess, I guess, yes, that slanted house of poetry is one that I've sidled into safely. Yeah. And I do feel able there, if not to draw tiny devils. Maybe I don't need to draw tiny devils there, but at least point out on the walls where they've been all along. I love that idea. Yeah, can I ask you to read the poem that starts, it's 6am and I'm camping on her doorstep. It's 6am and I'm camping on her doorstep. You see, the night was filled with much too big things. I want to tell her about them. I want her to hear and I want to hear what she says back. I know it will be kind or funny. It will make the day better, the night The flat white sky outside is as blank and bleak as these weeks of waiting, these years, and our children grow older, taller, draw their own lives round them like half-stitched coats. I'm not finished, though I feel it, exhausted from the thing that grows up still inside me. How can I wake at fifty with the same pain I woke with aged five? But I do, I do. It wakes me, even though I tell it, I'm exhausted. This can surely wait till morning. It doesn't, and it can't. Is there a consolation in the knowledge that readers are moved by your work? Yeah, it's a a great consolation to hear that. It's like a meeting or joining forces, which is particularly consoling because most of the work is about having felt alone. And I do feel I've managed to to put something down in both these books, you know, so both slightly to unburden myself, but also to kind of offer a record. So we might compare notes. This is sort of bearing witness aspect. It's not for me to decide who may pick up the books and read what's there, or indeed whether I ever hear anything about that, because this is that's all part of the magic of writing and reading. But I do feel at least I've kind of done my bit, at least for now. And yes, definitely what's driven it partly has been the need to say something that hasn't been said, at least by me in life mm. um, so far. And again, I thought, you know, returning to your idea of poetry as the place, I can see that, you know, the last few years I have been camping on poetry's doorstep because the night was filled with much too big things. One of the things I love about working on poems and putting together collections is that there's all the kind of calming conversations it enables with oneself 
you are giving yourself, ironically, the thing that you're writing about lacking. <laughs> and you find that you, you yourself are a kind of responsive reader to your own work. And that's slightly odd. <laughs> yeah. But oddly, you know, it's exciting. I, I think maybe lots of writers need to discover that they can have a conversation with themselves that they somehow have felt unable to have. You know, that's the beautiful thing about writing, that ability to build a bridge to other people. And build bridges in yourself. Yes, I agree. But also, you know, that idea of kind of splurging it all out, that isn't the part that I love. What I love is is the reworking and the crafting and the, you know, and the pushing it to a different, you know, and taking it further and making it something beautiful. So it's not the kind of, um, you know, just telling all your stories and pouring it out. It's not that at all. It's about working with subtlety and discovering yeah. that you have that capability, which is completely well, different from just sort of splurging. I'm going to ask you to read a final poem. Uh, it's called At the End of My Climb. You know, I'm sort of big and ugly enough to have read lots of stuff, but this is one of the rare poems that just I was in tears at the end of it. Let's end in tears, shall we? <laughs> okay, I'm sure we can manage that. If anyone can tell you and I can. <laughs> <laughs> so if you wouldn't mind reading that, that would be great. At the end of my climb, I stumble on an amber pond, all milky greens and gold. The view beyond is washed in pale blue, as if a child had toppled his jar of water. Suddenly, something darker stirs, just creasing the surface, exciting the birds. I sense some threat, taking a knot of angry hawthorns muttering. And then I see one, standing alone, all fingers and space, holding its frozen pose, facing one way, the way the wind has made it. And I see me, bleak, brittle, almost ridiculous, and mauve with loneliness. One of the things about your writing I find is that this absence of artifice. I don't find things that I've seen in other poems in there. You know, that sort of half ossified language that you get that's, you know, you've seen before. There's a quiet plainness, but you still manage to stamp on those hidden minds of emotion with there's nothing sort of baroque or curlicued about the language, but it just, it's always the right word and it's always one that's not overly drawing attention to itself. I've just tried to tell the truth um, as simply as I'm able to about things that I felt very deeply. And that's not always a simple thing to do. So in a way, I've been kind of astonished as I got older to discover, if I'm really honest with myself, to discover what it is I do still feel so strongly about all those years on from being young and being formed. And I've just thought this is extraordinary. You know, this is kind of interesting, useful information. And I'm going to make a record of it on the off chance that someone else might find it so too and uh, or feel the same way. And you know that thing about kind of writing the books you want to read? These have been my best efforts at writing the books I wanted to read. And the gamble is that someone else might, you know, feel the same and want to read them too. That's beautiful. I think people are going to take that gamble. That was great, wasn't it? Well, 
Charlotte Gann, I just think she's such an amazing writer. So that was then, and please come back and join Robin and I when we go live again with brand new recordings in our fourth season on October the 12th. Cheers for now.